Oftentimes, when I look back on the films I've directed, it feels like a series of battles fought. It's entailed meeting dark people in dangerous places and cajoling, seducing, and maneuvering them into telling the twisted tales of their lives. There has been the scrapping with financiers and distributors for enough money to get the work done right or get it out in the world in a way that it actually gets seen. And the bare-knuckled brawls with producers and executives to protect the integrity of the vision. I'm not sure how many of those battles have been won or lost, but I've tried my best to serve the work. And it's felt like anything but a fairy tale, which is why I like this story, because it's so different. It is the story of two friends who came together to make a doc about a bunch of New York City kids learning ballroom dancing. And it feels like a ray of light landing on my face after a long time in the tunnel. So this is one from the vault. Mad Hot Ballroom was a film made nearly 20 years ago. And if you haven't seen it yet, or it's been a while, take a moment to do so now. It'll make you feel better about this unhinged world we now live in. The conversation that follows is about how it came into the world, the lucky breaks along the way, and the lasting legacy of this classic doc. Without further ado, I give you a conversation with director Marilyn Agrello. Uh, Marilyn, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to jump on the show. I am a, a big fan of your work. Oh, that's so nice to hear. Thank you so much for having me. This is very nice. So every now and then we like to do kind of a deep dive, like a one from the vault kind of thing. And I'd love to spend the bulk of our time on uh, Mad Hot Ballroom today. Um, to me, this is one of, A, one of the seminal documentaries of our lifetime, B, one of the great New York movies, and C, one of the, the most brilliant sort of evocations of childhood and with, with an intimacy and an authenticity authenticity that I've ever seen. And so can you kind of, before we dive into the film, rewind back to sort of where you were at the time and in brief, tell us the path that leads you to documentaries and the path to that film in particular. First of all, let me say that everything you're saying is such music to my ears. That little film, I cannot tell you how many people continue to tell me how much that film means to them. And when we made Mad Hot Ballroom, it was a sweet little piece that I loved, my editor loved, my, my uh, partner in this loved, but we never imagined it would uh, resonate the way it did around the world. Um, this, is how it, this is how it came to be for me. I was uh, working as an assistant in various production entities, trying to figure out uh, Am I a producer? Can I ever be a director? I love uh, working with news crews and that kind of thing. And that really, those jobs really turned me on to the uh, art of storytelling. And my very good friend, Amy Sewell, who was a stay-at-home mom and a writer, was working on a local newspaper called the Tribeca Trib. And she was doing a story about a local elementary school that had this ballroom dance program. And she wrote this very long, beautiful article. And she got in touch with me and said, I don't know anything about making a movie, but I think this would be great. I want to cover these kids in Tribeca next semester when they do this uh, 
uh, you know, the next iteration of the right. ballroom dance program. So how detail? So can I interrupt with a question, which is like, how detailed is the article that she had, you know, that she's written and like, how clear is the vision for the film, uh, you know, in the earliest sort of iterations and stages of this, like, you know, and when you hear this, you know, you've got like, okay, there's the kernel of an idea here, but the actual sort of like, how do we turn this into a movie? Talk about that sort of like thought process and where you went from there. That's a great question. Uh, the article was very observational. You know, the article was like, looking at the progression of these kids learning dance. And it was looking at a particular type of child because it, the children in Tribeca tend to be, they come from very affluent families. They are used to succeeding. They're used to things coming to them and mastering whatever comes to them. and. Uh, there's nothing wrong with any of that, but my first impression of <clears throat> perhaps turning this into a film was, this is New York. This is the city of contrasts. I'm How do I capture it? Yeah, yeah. By the way, when this dance program comes to your school, it's not an elective. If your school has the ballroom dance program and you're in the fifth grade, you're dancing, period. It's So it's forced on these kids which is right. a great for, as a storyteller, it's fantastic. Um, but how do kids of different, you know, backgrounds, economic situations deal with having to dance to Frank Sinatra when they all are listening to hip hop? This interested me because it, it took it out of the realm of being a dance movie. It was about, um, society it was about new york city it was about uh childhood yeah yeah coping with something competition following your dreams all that stuff so uh, that was my big initial contribution really was to follow several groups and let's see how that all goes so, so how do you begin sort of setting it up from there, right? From so like, okay, you have the vision of this is going to be, uh, you know, econo racially diverse, economically diverse film. You're going to have all these kids. They're going to be thrust into, you know, a competition setting. I imagine the process. And how much time do you have from the time like you first get the idea to, okay, we're going to prep this and turn it into a film. How do I get money to make it? Um, you know, how many people do I need shooting? Kind of what's the evolution? Of, of your of the process from there, particularly given that you know for you this was a a maiden voyage so to speak in terms of fig like this is a very complex film and why I wanted to focus on it is it's in you know sharp contradistinction to a lot of you know what we're seeing today and like a lot of the films that I've done recently or your Sesame Street film where it's you know there are these archivally driven films they're interviews we're bringing the world you know a sort of particular moment or story to life but this is like verite it's real time you have to figure out who are we following how many cameras do we need how long are we shooting like break it down for us that process of kind of from kernel of idea to how the hell do I execute this? One of the beauties of this film is that it had a lot of purity on every level. Our subjects were 10 years old, you know, just 
seeing the world for the first time, maybe in many cases, the first time they get to express themselves in this way and talk about their lives. Uh, film. This film was also pure in the sense that it was, as you say, our maiden voyage. We approached it on a very instinctual level, pure instinct. We need to keep the crew as small as possible so that it'll be intimate, so that the kids will feel free to speak to us, so that there will not be a production happening that they'll be aware of. Um, Also, uh, so we contacted the people that run the program and from them, we got a list of all the schools around the city that uh, are participating. And from there, we looked at, I don't know, 25 schools. And a lot of the choices that we made, I very much wanted uh, a group that was from an economically challenged background. I'm Cuban and the when we met those Dominican kids, that to me was magic. Amazing, so, amazing, yeah. They were so beautiful. They were so, um, they don't really have a lot, but they know how to dance. This is in their blood. This is in their DNA, you know? They're born dancing as soon as they start walking in their homes. And uh, so, that to me was a very clear choice. Um, these Dominican kids from a neighborhood where drug dealing was happening and crime was rampant. I very early on got this feeling that we needed to show the details of the fruit stand on the corner and the. I, 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 I love this about the film because you have all these moments in there like where it's just it, like it's incredibly cinematic where you're sort of like stepping out of story for a moment and you're putting us in place and in a moment whether it's like you know just a particular fruit vendor or a bodega or you know shopping for the dresses these little kind of you know quintessentially iconic new york moments and you and you and you also not only do you shoot those beautifully but they're very beautifully arranged in the film where it's like, okay, we've just had a scene where we've been with the kids and, or we've been in somebody's, you know, apartment or whatever it may be. And then we drop into a street corner. I guess, talk about that, go deeper into that sort of, you know, notion because you are constructing, you know, you have verite scenes where you're shooting, say the kids in a, in a rehearsal or, you know, at their homes. Then you have these little vignettes, the little sort of street corner vignettes. Like, are you consciously constructing like, okay, I need one of these every 10, 15 minutes. Or again, how much of this was just sort of instinctual? Like now I need this. Now I need that. I mean, when we were thinking of who to cast for this film, we ended up with these three schools because they were radically different, right? You have the society um, of Tribeca, where these kids' parents are lawyers and artists and writers, okay? You have this school in Brooklyn where it's working class, um, very ethnically diverse, uh, these children are salt of the earth kids. Knock you know? around kids. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, their parents are chugging back beers in the bar. You know, it's a very neighborhood, blue collar kind of thing, which was kind of fantastic. And then you have Washington Heights, 
where many of these kids, you know, parents don't speak English, the parents are limited in how they can help them navigate the world because their language skills are limited. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, these kids have many challenges, but there's a beauty to the cohesiveness of that neighborhood. And so when we thought about the three strands, there were so many iconic things in each one of those strands. In Brooklyn, they all have statues of the Virgin Mary on the front lawn. You know, there's the Italian pizzeria. It's very, I don't know, very urban, but very old school kind of urban, you know? Yep, yep. Um, The Asian section and the Italian section and the... The life there is very distinct. Washington Heights, I mean, everyone's playing dominoes in the streets and, you know, the language and the, the music is so prominent there. And it's a very Spanish culture and they're all finding their way, parents and kids. Tribeca, very tony, beautiful, clean, people walking with their poodles. And, you know, it, it, it was to me like gold to have these three distinct threads. Okay, so so go deeper into that, because I think like the, you know, casting is a really foundational element of a film like this, right? And so what you're talking about is, you know, you look at these 25 schools, and then you're like, okay, now I'm starting to see kind of how a pattern can emerge here. I want the like Brooklyn knock around vibe. I want the like, you know, taste of the Spanish with, you know, Washington Heights. I want, I, you know, I want to keep the like, you know, slick, uh, um, you know, Tribeca vibe to it. From there, once you kind of are able to narrow it down to those three, then there's the actual individual casting of like sort of teachers, kids, you know, uh, dance teachers. And, oh, and like the the casting of this, I think, is is so absolutely phenomenal just in terms of the diversity of characters and the way they come through. Are you, you know, when you're going in to do that, are you instantaneously like, OK, boom, that's going to be a star of this film? Like, do you know instantaneously? Are you shooting, you know, out of the gate or do you meet with them first? Like how, what's that process in terms of, um, you know, before you roll cameras or as you're starting to roll cameras knowing, okay, this is where we're going to build this film. I thought that process would be, um, a process of shooting and little by little getting to know them. But as you said, the main characters revealed themselves almost immediately. They just did. Um, it's it's one of those things about docs, right? Like you, they need stars just like features need stars. And you know, as a filmmaker, like these are my stars. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm sorry. No, not at all. Um, for example, uh, we went to each school and did this thing where we introduced ourselves. We're going to be shooting a film. We're going to be here with cameras. I, you know, I was explaining to the children that I didn't want them to look at the camera, I wanted them to act as though we weren't there. In Tribeca, I asked the question, does anybody know what a documentary film is? Everybody was quiet. They were looking at me like I was insane. One little boy raises his hand from the back of the room, 10 years old, Cyrus. And I said, thank God, someone is interested in talking. And I call on him and he says, do you guys have a distribution deal in place yet? Hilarious. Yeah, like, so this is Tribeca. And here is a kid who shined and and little things like that um 
not only because of what he said, but how he presented himself. You know, in Washington Heights, there was a little boy. Everyone notices him. Wilson. He was amazing character. Yeah. Uh, didn't speak any English when we first met him, but there was something about his presence that was so powerful. And, you know, he was such a gentle, beautiful boy. He is now very proudly out as a gay young man. At the time, you can imagine in a neighborhood like that, it's not easy to be different. And, you know, in that culture, it's not the easiest thing. But he was so beautiful and so elegant, the way he carried himself. Immediately, he was a character and a beautiful one. Those are just two examples. So it's it's interesting because I'm a big believer in, and my experience has been you know, if you will listen to it, the film does reveal itself to you. You know, it knows what it wants to be and it knows sort of there's a there's a, a sort of logic to a film and it's as much about responding to it and, and being sort of open to it as it is forcing it, if not more so, you know. I say this to people all the time, you know, of course you need an idea going in, you need a plan, you need a concept but you think you're making this film and the film is gonna say to you, no, we're making this film. It, and it does tell you, and you, you have to have an open heart and an open mind. And, um, you know, maybe we were very lucky because this was our first venture and there was no uh, experience to fall back on. It was a question completely of trusting instinct but I always say with that piece, the stars aligned. It really, it, our intentions were pure. The children were kind of pure. I, By the way, I recorded many interviews with adults because I felt that the story would have to be carried out by what the adults said, that the children wouldn't be capable of that. But as soon as they started speaking, we threw all the adults away it, the, the magic was coming from them. Okay, I, I want to go further into that because I think that's a really interesting, interesting point. Um, but let me let me let me go back to a question that you brought up. Like, did you have a distribution deal? What was the plan? Like, what kind of money did you have to work with it? And I know, I mean, Spellbound had been made a couple of years before Mad Hot Ballroom, right? So like, and we had seen like, okay, there's something about this format in, you know, in a sense, or that construct that like can make a beautiful film. It's inherently got the drama of competition. It's got a cast that winnows it down. It's got dramatic stakes. Like, what is that a touchstone for you, or what is a touchstone? And how the hell do you get the money to make this film? Because this was one of those breakthrough movies that really kind of brought documentaries to where they are today. I mean, people are, you know, are this, these films are being watched in a massive way, but at the time, like, who would have thought this would be like breakout theatrical film, you know? So, so how did you get, to, how did you get that part of things put together? We, Put together, um, there was a, a Gotham film forum that was happening um, for distributors, for filmmakers that wanted to break through. And we applied to that. And we didn't really have a film, but 
my editor, Sabina Crambule, who was so fantastic, uh, helped me make a little reel that was just little moments with the kids talking and then black. And then a little moment with a little dance and some more kids talking in black. It was just a selection of scenes. And when we showed that um, at the Angelica Film Center, which is where the forum was being held, we, that was a breakout moment. Really, a lot of people paid attention to this. We got a very good sales agent. We got representation. Um, people knew you had something. People, somebody came up to me and said, you know what you got up there on that screen? You got gold. It was just one of these things. It was, and my friends who are filmmakers all said, you know, it really doesn't happen this way. What's happening to you is not the norm. And it was fantastic to go through the whole process just first time out with this kind of response because we loved this so much. Um, to answer your question about financing, we were very, very lucky and um, some private people stepped up and financed our film. Did you, uh, like, how many crews are you, how many cameras are, are, are shooting? Like, how many shoot days do you have? Like, you know you've got a finite schedule because you've got the competitions looming, right? So it's like, and are you kind of shooting around the clock? How much of it, you know, ends up on the cutting room floor? And then what's the production process? Okay, so we have, which was also a blessing, a, a limited time frame. We start shooting in January, late January, which is when the ballroom dance course begins in our three schools. And then the final competition is in June. So that's our time frame. We took out a calendar and decided, okay, let's see what happens if we shoot three days a week to start. And a lot of it was based really on School A has the class on Tuesday. We can go from there to Washington Heights to Brooklyn. You know, a lot of it was logistically helping us. Um, so we shot about three days a week and then we started to shoot the more rich storytelling parts of it in the children's homes, in their neighborhoods, in the park. Um, the, the vast majority of the film was shot with one camera. We had our we had our fantastic DP Claudia um, Rashka who shot all of the school um, class classroom scenes in the gyms and the scenes in the homes and the personal scenes with the kids getting together. I think we had in total about seventy five shoot days, seventy maybe. Um, but the vast majority was shot with her. Now, when we had the quarterfinals and the semifinals, we brought in a second camera person so that one could be with the kids that were watching as their counterparts were competing and one that was following the couples on and off the floor and also catching the parents' reactions and so on. And for the final competition, we had four cameras. That was a very big production. Right, right. Production. That was that was a massive, uncontrollable production at that point. Um, <laughs> the uh, so so that's really quite interesting. The like I think the cinematography is really amazing in this because 
these scenes are covered so effectively and well, right? Like you've got the like over the shoulders as, you know, the the dance teachers are sort of explaining the scene. And then you've got the singles of the dance. And then you've got, you cut to the kids. It's really, it, it's shot very much like, um, you know, like a dramatic film with all of those elements and very elegantly done um, talk about working with your cinematographer and sort of, you know, that eye and, and kind of the, so as you've got you cinematographer, sound person, I assume, um, mm -hmm. and, and is that sort of the extent of it or do you have some additional hands? Uh, myself and Amy Sewell, who's my partner in this film. She's the one that wrote the original article and produced it and we worked together throughout. So it was Amy, myself, Claudia and Tammy, our sound person. That was basically the crew. Um, the way I worked with Claudia was interesting because I had to be away in another room for much of this process because she would swing her camera around. So much was going on around her and I had to be out of the way or so many shots would have been ruined. Um, and there's such a special skill with shooting that way because you're focused on one thing that's happening in front of you, but you hear something interesting going on behind you. And it's always a choice. Do you stick with this thing I'm shooting or do you turn around to capture that? So the instinct of the cinematographer in this type of filmmaking is hugely important. We talked a lot about what we had captured at the end of the day and how we were going to proceed and how we were going to continue and which characters were doing things that were of interest. Also, um, Sabina, the editor, started cutting the film two weeks into our shooting it. And that was amazing because I was able to bring her what we shot that day and talk to her about it. And she was also able to create little scenes and show me, look what this kid said, see if you can follow this through and we created the film together there was very little if anything that we were ever going to be able to um reenact right so so that's really interesting that that ability to be simultaneously cutting and shooting you know or doing it in quick succession and and i imagine in both of those cases as a director right you've got the moments that happen where claudia is shooting and you may or may not know exactly what you know th is happening here or there then you have those moments in the edit bay where your editor is like okay this is amazing we need to sort of follow this and you're able because those are happening you know concurrently to kind of shape it and toggle and, and be the bridge between all those people. Is that, is that right? Absolutely. If we had not been constructing the film as we went along, I think we would have missed many opportunities because little things were developing. And, and it's true. I would go into the edit room or I would look at dailies and see moments that had happened that I missed during the day of shooting in some cases. So it, that somehow we figured out the, the optimal uh, techniques for making a film like this, which was so dependent on everyone feeling open and intimate and free to express themselves. You know, as far as the kids, uh, it's a very different animal than shooting adults. And 
doing sit down interviews with the kids was never going to be of interest or successful. They are much more comfortable talking to each other. And so instead I would hide under a table or, you know, hide in the corner and throw topics out to them. Okay. I was, uh, yeah, I was very curious about this because there are all of these amazing scenes where you can feel the, like you said, the intimacy and authenticity of the kids. And yet it is, they're interactive where they're talking to each other. But I could also in some, like, you know, intuit your like directorial hand of like, okay, you know, have the girls talk about boys or have the boys talk about, and, and how much are you, you know, and I assume you get kind of a rhythm with them where they, they, you know, kids, kids are smart. They get the gig of like, you know, sort of this is the enterprise and, and talk about that kind of directing, because I think like, A, it's so masterfully done and B, talk about the, the sort of art of it and how, and how you're able to kind of subtly direct that to capture it without, you know, to, to direct it without interfering with it, because I think it was so masterfully done. Thank you so much. Honestly, I'll say a few things. Children uh, in 2004, when we shot this film, have grown up with video cameras, shooting them from birth, essentially. So that part of it was not an obstacle or something to get them used to. Um, it was more uh, to get them to ignore it, really. And that was surprisingly less hard than I thought. Um, I also, it, it was really developing trust with them was the most important thing. And letting them know that there was no judgment, because in the end of the day, I'm an adult and they're kids. But once they felt there was no judgment, I think they felt free to say whatever they wanted to say. And in some cases, honestly, um, there were a few things that were said that would have made a very interesting film, but I felt they were so young and they didn't understand enough to protect themselves from revealing certain things. And with children that young, it was important to protect them from that because they really opened up. And um, beautiful about family, about family members, you know. Well, I mean, and that's always part of the enterprise of making documentaries, right? Even if it's, you know, even with adults and whatever else is you are crafting a performance and you are protecting characters in the edit bay. And, and, and I think it's like a bit of a sacred job of the documentarian, right? To do so. Like these are people that are entrusting you with their most precious stuff, whether they're aware of it or not. And you are a custodian of that. Um, talk about that and kind of the, where you're, go deeper on that, kind of the moral and ethical considerations. Yeah, I mean, these children were revealing so much of themselves their fears, their insecurities. Um, I, I will also say that we caught these kids at a perfect age. They were 10 and 11, which is old enough to not be a little kid, old enough to have 
opinions and be in the world a bit, but not old enough to be too cool. Do you know? They're still, they're just, they're at the precipice of innocence and the loss of innocence. And that was, I think, um, greatly beneficial to this piece. And the, the, the specter of the opposite sex and sex as a whole. It's, it's, loom, it's, it's looming, but it hasn't quite, though, you know, it hasn't quite, the wave hasn't quite crested. And it's an interesting, you know, point that you're raising too, which is, the film also shows kind of the education, you know, it is this wonderful kind of almost coming of age in a way where you ha- where you see you're confronted with success or failure and the sort of stark line between those. And there are those moments where, okay, this group gets picked, but this one doesn't. And how do you deal with the kind of, you know, the harshness of the world, but they are still so... Um, as you said, you know, perfectly innocent or not quite perfectly innocent, but not quite kind of corrupted by the adult world yet. Oh my God. The whole concept of uh, competing against each other and the winning and the losing. It's funny. All of them, even the Dominican kids who love to dance are resistant to the process at first because it's all these things you have to put your arms around a girl you have to look each other in the eye you have to do all these things that are really uncomfortable and the music is so uncool you know right it's right. embarrassing it's, it's terrible um but at some point a hundred percent of them it kicks in this competitive thing where they they want to win for whatever reason they want to win and there's a scene where the the Tribeca group is knocked out. And these are kids that are not accustomed to failure. Yeah, to losing. They're yeah. not. No, no, they're not. And um, their teachers were always a little torn about exposing them to competition. You know, these kids are coddled. They're protected. All of these things. I thought that was so interesting. And how hard they took their defeat yeah it's a beautiful it's a beautiful moment powerful moment but you know that they're going to be fine they're going to be absolutely fine of course they're going to go to europe in the summer or they're going to move on and everything's going to be great it was just the shock of your first adult reality your first failure right Um, right yeah i think that's what that's what made it so poignant so that was amazing and for the Dominican kids, this triumphant moment was hugely important. I mean, it, I, I can't tell you how big that was. There was a parade in their neighborhood, you know. It was a win. It, yeah, it was it, a huge it, win. They They succeeded, you know, and I think it set them up to believe in their own power it was it was incredible it really was you know we were shooting once there's a scene in the film where we're shooting two little girls having a talk and we're shooting them walking backwards and they're walking towards the camera and they're talking to each other and at one point there was a cluster of guys that we were approaching and i could hear them saying to each other in spanish 
they have microphones and they parted so that we could pass through. And I was so touched that they did that for us. I went back and I spoke to one of them and I said, thank you so much for getting out of the way. And then I realized we had interrupted a drug deal in process and wow. they were scared of, they were scared of our microphones because they didn't want to be arrested. One of those guys at some point came up to me and said, we don't like cameras in this neighborhood, in the street. And I said, okay, I'm sorry. And he said, no, we know you're doing something with those kids. It's okay. We're going to let you do that. Wow. That's a, that's an amazing moment. Yeah. I know even the guys who are, uh, the kings the of the street yeah. who are yeah. the, the, the criminals, they understood something was happening with these kids that was of value. That was really being validated by those guys was everything to us. Yeah, that's that. And that what an amazing New York moment that is, too. Right. Where it's like, you know, the city, the city parts, the, you know, the sea of, you know, a dope deal parts to like allow this beautiful thing coming through. Let me ask you a couple of practical questions. So like, obviously, you know, going into this, God, there's going to be a lot of music licensing and like, I don't have control over what songs get played. This is going to be expensive. What do we do? And how much of a kind of a, you know, a stress was that? And how do you navigate that? That was the most stressful component, really, because as you say, the music was not our choice. It was the music that was part of the action we were capturing. And so we had to, Amy really took control of uh, contacting all these people to uh, get licenses for these films. We managed to get, um, you know, festival clearances and this kind of thing. But the music on that film is some of the most expensive music you can I'm sure. attempt. Frank yeah. Sinatra, Lena Horne, and um, it was a huge part of the budget. I think very much out of whack with most music clearances. But it's so it's it's so pivotal and defining to the film too, right? Because like this yeah. is the soundtrack of the experience, so you absolutely have to have it. And in a weird way it makes it almost a musical or a dance film. You know, there is that joy in, in, in the music. And there is that uh, knowledge that even music from another era has meaning and has impact. And, you know, all kids, I certainly felt when I was whatever, 12 years old, that my music was cool and old music was not. And this is just the natural way, but that these kids um, learn to love something and learn to interact with each other in a way that was unnatural to them. By the way, it, New York City has cut arts programs in schools continuously through the decades. And this one dance program keeps surviving every cut because it radically changes behavior. Wow. Yeah. It just That's does. Yeah. To look a boy and a girl, mostly with the boys, I would say, to be forced to look at a girl in the eye and put your arms around her and give her what she needs. It's just a different 
way of relating than any of them have ever been exposed to. And it has dramatic results. Isn't that funny? Yeah, no, it's, it, it makes sense. And, and it's, you know, it was really interesting rewatching the film kind of now amidst the societal and political like chaos that we all live in, you know, there, there was something so, I don't know, I guess, sort of like life affirming and sweet and reassuring and, and classical really is what I felt sort of like watching the film. Like, oh, this is like a classic movie. And, um, you know, I mean, I guess next year will be 20 years since since the movie's been... Are you going to do a re-release or anything? For, I mean, what a wonderful time. Like, you, you know, do one of those one-day theatricals or anything and sort of put it back in there because, like, what a perfect, perfect time to do that. I would love for that to happen. Um, I really would. I, I feel like, you know, this film was in Paramount Classics, which was uh, the, the small Paramount, and they have since closed many years ago and it's in the hands of big paramount i'm not sure how aware they are of this little gem they own maybe um, maybe maybe we'll tickle them and see if we can get them to you know to to put it back out there because i just i think that I, I think that audiences now would connect, like just as they did when it was released. But I think there there was something really powerful about seeing it again now and thinking like, God, the world needs more of this, more films like this, more programs like this, more, you know, because it's it's uh, it has love in its heart and it just drips off the drips off the screen. Oh, that's uh, I'm so happy to hear you speak of this film this way. It's thank you so much. Last two questions for you. Um, talk about the edit a little bit, right? So you finally, you finish shooting, you know you've got a movie, you know you've got characters, you've been cutting along the way. How long are you in the edit bay? You know, how much footage are you carving down from, you know, whatever you've initially shot to, okay, this is the finished hour and 45 minute film. And how long does that take you? Our first cut was, I think, seven hours long, um, which which really encompassed the story um, and everything that occurred the first day of class, you know, really was the fat, fat cut. And that was so daunting. How, how will we lose all these moments? And with all of these films, there's so many moments that you love so much and you swear will never be lost and they are and the film is fine in fact maybe even stronger without it this was my big lesson how sometimes the more compactly the story is told its power increases mm -hmm. um and sabina kept saying to me it's going to get stronger we're going to lose that and we would lose it and we'd watch it and it would get stronger so it the initial edit was about, I would say, five months. And then it took us about another two months to get to a cut that we felt was... Pretty close. Pretty close. Um, Paramount Classics, they had some notes and some notes that were a little hard to take and some notes that were great. But in the end... The last note they gave us was, we just want you to take eight minutes out. We don't care from where, because this is going to give us an extra screening every day in theaters. <laughs> yep. They knew they had something they really wanted to put out there, which was great. Um, 
but yeah, it's, uh, that was quite a process getting down to the length that you see it now. So my last question for you is like, take us back to the release of this movie. Cause like, this was just a, you know, I think it was, you know, it was a sensation and, um, what was that feeling like having kind of, you know, gambled it all on this and, and sort of, you know, come in intuitively following it and then seeing it in the world and actually seeing it in theaters? Like, what was that? What was that experience like for you? I, I first want to tell you the story quickly of when we premiered in Park City. Sundance Reject didn't take Mad Hop Ballroom. And our sales agent said, okay, we're going to go to Slam Dance. And I was like, Slam Dance? And we were the opening film of Slam Dance. And uh, throughout the week of Sundance, Slam Dance, you know, everyone is buzzing about different films. And Roger Ebert said to me on Main Street, that little movie of yours is at critical mass. Everyone is talking about it. Everyone. When can I see it? And we had our screening the next day and our sales agent said to me every distributor in hollywood is in this room we were in a terrible screening room it was boiling hot in there the film didn't even look that good but it was packed with press and with distributors and we had some of the kids with us to do a q a afterwards during the film i saw all these people on their blackberries at the time they were all and, and I was so hurt because I felt like these people are so rude. They're making dinner plans or whatever. And they see I'm the director. They're not even looking at the film. I didn't understand what was really happening. And when the film ended, there was a stampede. They all ran out of the room. And we had these kids to do a Q&A. And we were so devastated because there was like 10 people in the audience at that point. And our sales agent came up to us and said, we're gonna sell this film tonight. They're all going crazy. Like they stampeded out of there to make offers. And deal. Wow, yeah. what an amazing and, scene. And they said to us, do not take a call from any of them. And sure enough, they were all calling all these indie people, uh, studio heads. It was so exciting. And at five o'clock in the morning, um, after a couple of, uh, bidding wars we sold the film so that wow was, beautiful, <laughs> that story. Was beautiful story beautiful story beautiful story and to see it in theaters was amazing i mean it was in so many theaters in manhattan it was uptown downtown in every neighborhood and it just had such a an amazing run um to see it on marquees and to sometimes i would stand there and watch people buy tickets to see who was looking to, to buy tickets to Mad Hop Ballroom. And everyone knew of it. And when I would say that I was the director of Mad Hop Ballroom, people would be so surprised and so shocked. And it was, it was incredible. I can't even describe what that year felt like. Wow, what a beautiful, um, you know, it is a, that is a cinema dream come true, you know, Tr like truly, like that's, it's what a rare and precious gift, A, the film that you made and B, the experience that you had. And uh, I think that's a, a beautiful and, and, and perfect place to end for today. So thank you so much for 
um, you know, for making this beautiful movie, for sharing your insights about the process and for that amazing story at the end. Thank you so much for having me. This was so meaningful. And uh, this film is so special to me and I really appreciate uh, your interest in it. Thank you. Would love to see it back out there next year for, for 20th anniversary. That'd be great. That would be great. Thank you so much, Marilyn. Thank you so much. Thank you to Marilyn Agrello for making this amazing film and for sharing her time and elucidating how she did so. And thank you to the kids and dance teachers who participated. It's a classic. See you next time on The Dangerous Art of the Documentary. The Dangerous Art of the Documentary is a Tillerman Films production produced by Jacob Miller. Music by Zydepunk, Graham Tracy, and James Carroll. It's distributed by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler through Double Elvis Productions. Thank you for listening.